Hello, thanks for listening to this University of Brighton podcast. I'm Richard Newman, and this week I've been speaking to Alan Bazer, who works in student operations and support. That's just one of Alan's many guises. He has a role on the university's board of governors, and outside of work, he's a world sailing official who travels the world to judge and umpire at big events, including the Rio Olympics in 2016. He's also chair of the Brighton and Hove Actually Gay Men's Chorus. Loads to talk about. I now work in the Student Operations and Support Department, uh, having previously worked in the Accommodation Hospitality Services Department. Um, so most of my work for some years now has been around the um, the big build, the student accommodation aspect of the big build, uh, and previous to that, the Varley Park redevelopment, so the kind of coordination of those pieces of work. So with the big build, I've been working on the Mithras House parcel of land, so the car park in front of Mithras House, uh, and that's got three separate aspects to it. So it's going to be the new gym facilities for the campus, uh, the new student union facilities, and then it's going to deliver about 800 bedrooms of accommodation and five towers. Uh, and as part of uh, the process for that, myself and some other colleagues have been working with the shortlisted bidders to create schemes that actually comply with the university's design. Desires. Uh, and then we assessed those tenders uh, and we selected a preferred bidder, which is a company called U Living. Uh, and we've worked with U Living probably for about the last year to develop a, a student accommodation scheme that complies with all the requirements and the desires of the university. Uh, and now, as we all know, they're actually starting to build it. Uh, so we're looking forward as an accommodation service to September 2021, when we'll actually be working with you living on the ground to deliver uh, the accommodation for our students, which is uh, very much needed. And, and I mean, you're quite involved with you're very involved with the accommodation because you are a residential advisor now as well. So what does that involve? Yeah, so actually I've been a residential advisor for a very long time, maybe 10, 11 years. There's a team of six of us in Brighton uh, and we all live in the halls of residence. And between the six of us, we take an on-call rotor out of core hours uh, and we respond to telephone calls either from students, from parents or from sort of the security staff uh, to support students who live in halls of residence. So uh, we'll actually provide signposting a little bit of guidance and support uh, over the phone or we'll go to the residences and we'll sit with the students and we'll talk to the students and just try and um, help them through uh, the issues that they're experiencing at that point in time. It is normally a matter of signposting or uh, getting other services involved so be it the NHS uh, is the main uh, partner that we'll work with uh, and we're just there basically to provide an extra level of support to students who live in the halls of residence. I mean, there's a lot to get stuck into here, Alan, because you're a pretty busy guy outside of work <laughs> as well. Um, you've got a role on the Board of Governors. Um, so you're a residential advisor. You, it's just at the university, first of all. Um, you're on the LGBT plus staff network group. You represented University UK to central government. You run the Brighton Hove Actually Gay Men's Chorus. And you're a world sailing international judge, which also involves a trip to the Rio Olympics. I mean, like, how do you actually... How do you fit it all in? Because even when you're at home, you're actually you're helping the students as well. <laughs> My God, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so I have a pretty busy life, it's fair to say. Uh, and there is a lot of juggling that goes on, uh, certainly outside of work, to make it all, all uh, actually kind of mesh together and to work properly. All my annual leave goes on going on sailing competitions. Uh, most of my weekends I'm away at sailing competitions here in the UK. Um, 
part of that is for fun and enjoyment because I do really, really love it. And part of it is actually just keeping the skills up. Uh, I've been fortunate that the university has allowed me to take some unpaid leave over the years when I've needed to, um, which has allowed me a bit of more freedom and time to actually go and pursue um, the, the, the race officiating, the sports officiating for sailing. We're going to come back to sailing in just yep. in just a bit. Um, you've been here for quite a long time at the University of Brighton. So what is it about, you actually came from the University of Sussex as well. So what is it about uh, working in higher education, which has sort of had you hooked? So when I, I went to university um, in 1999, sadly, I only managed to do two years at university before um, personal circumstances um, made me make the decision to leave university. Uh and I got back into it purely by accident, really, uh, and worked at the University of Sussex in the catering department because that was what I was working in after I left university. Uh, and then I came to Brighton uh, and I came as deputy halls manager at Varley Halls, as was in the olden days. Uh, and it just felt really, really comfortable. It felt really, really good to actually... Um, be in that environment because it's a supportive environment. You get to see the students when they're at the best you get to see the students when they're at the worst and you can actually make hopefully make a difference in someone's life and I do genuinely believe um, that higher education can really make a difference to people's lives and it has a huge benefit to society and actually it links into being on the board of governors because for years and years and years the university always asks for volunteers to come and help out at graduation. And because of my personal experience at uni, I didn't feel like it was my place to go to graduation and to help and support and be a steward. Um, but since being on the board and you get to sit on the platform party, it's just such an honour and it's a day of just such pure positivity and amazingness. And you see all the success of all the students and it's the success that all the staff put into their relationships with the students, be that um, the teaching staff, the research staff and all the professional services staff. We all contribute to that day of success for those students on, on that day of graduation. And I guess, you know, when... The call comes out for volunteers again this year. I would encourage absolutely anybody to volunteer to be a steward or to help out at graduation because that's why we're all here at the end of the day. We're here for the success of those students and to support and help those students along their journey. Yeah, that graduations are fast approaching as well. Um, you're clearly very passionate then about universities and the amounts of um, external work that you've put into it as well. So can you tell us about the work that you've done previously with Universities UK? So Universities UK runs a uh, student accommodation management accreditation scheme uh, and it accredits about a quarter of a million units of accommodation across the UK within the student accommodation sector for accommodation that's managed by universities. Part of the governance arrangements for that scheme is that there's a governance board and a sector advisory group which draws people from within the sector and outside the sector to actually ensure that the code of practice is being appropriately managed and the standards are appropriate. Uh, and that's the role that I took. So I was on both the sector advisory group and the governance board for the um, University's UK Code of Practice for Student Accommodation Management. It's got a catchy title, uh, which in the marketing is now shortened to just the Student Accommodation Code. Uh, and the University of Brighton obviously signs up to that Code of Practice. The role that you have on the Board of Governors, a co-opted member, this seems like a silly question. A lot of people 
don't know, I guess. Uh, what is the what is the main role of the Board of Governors? Because we also have the, the University Executive Board as well. Yeah, so it's important to understand that there's a very much a separation of responsibilities and roles between the executive management of the university and then the strategic and legal governance of the university. So the Board of Governors have various legal responsibilities to OFS, principally to OFS, but other bodies as well, to ensure that the university operates legally. Um, the university is what's known as an exempt charity. So the board, the members of the board become the trustees of the charity, and we become legally responsible for the operation of the university. So that's one of the main focuses. Um, but the, the biggest part of the business is just actually... Uh, working with the executive and questioning the executive to ensure that the university is being managed appropriately and has the uh, resources to continue delivering the service to students uh, over the future. So it's the long-term life of the university. And what about your role? Okay, so uh, I have been elected by the non-teaching staff of the university to be on the Board of Governors. And My role is much like any of the independent governors. It's to question the executive and ensure that they're making the right decisions for the long-term future of the university. Um, The key thing that the staff members give is that we can actually give a genuine uh, perspective on the lived experience of the university and what it's like here because uh, we have a huge amount of very skilled and very talented and very knowledgeable independent members of the board who come from various different backgrounds and can actually have really insightful questioning uh, of the management of the university but they don't necessarily know what it's like on a day-to-day basis living here and working here as as I do both live and work at the university Um, and so that's our role really it's to give that lived experience and i mean it's a, it's a huge time for the university sector uh, a time of uncertainty really augur review is out but the political situation as it is we don't really know how much of that will come to fruition so what does the board of governors need to do in in this situation what what has it been doing you're quite right the um the the challenge is that we just don't know what the government's going to do. And so the board are responsible overall for the long-term success of the university. And it's really difficult for any of us to actually plan for the future, not knowing what parts of Augur are going to be implemented and what's not going to be implemented. Um, So the responsibility on the board is to question the executive and to actually make sure that they have... Uh, run various scenarios and various models around budgeting and financing to ensure that the university has the resources to operate in the future uh, and to maintain as positive an experience for our students as possible. Clearly the role of the board is sort of helping to fight for the value of university education, the value it has for students but also the staff that work here as well and the wider community so mm. the impact that it has for, for us for example the impact it have on Brighton and Hove and the surrounding area. Yeah absolutely so everybody who's on the board is passionate about higher education and um, the simple fact for me and I think for most members of the board is that we are an organisation that is all about the people so uh, whether it's the members of staff that work here both academics and professional services or if it's the students or if it's the members of the community we have a social responsibility um, to ensure that we are operating ethically and sustainably uh, and to ensure the longevity of the university yeah um let's talk about the olympics a world sailing international judge 
Selling as a sport then, how has this come about? Is it something that you've always been involved in? Yeah, so you've done your research, Richard, but I just need to just correct you. I'm both an international judge and an international umpire. Okay, sorry. <laughs> uh, they are different. As a judge, we are kind of experts in the racing rules of sailing. Uh, And sailing is a really kind of legalistic, juridified sport. So uh, on the water, it's normally a self-policing sport. So if one boat thinks another boat's broken a rule, then it has to lodge a protest against them, which involves filling in a form within a certain time and handing it in to the jury. And then we as the jury which is the panel of judges we will sit and we'll take evidence from the two parties we'll take evidence from any witnesses uh, we'll question them they can question each other and then we'll come to a decision and that's how sailing normally works uh, for the vast majority of it and then for a certain few specialist types of sailing so match racing which is one-on-one close very tactical aggressive sailing um, team racing and then medal racing which is the finals of the olympics um, we do what's called umpiring so the umpires have the same knowledge as the judges but we have an additional set of specialist skills which are much like a, a referee on a rugby pitch so it's about the tactical knowledge the anticipation the positioning because we have to make sure that we can get to a position to see all the facts that we need in order to allow us to make a decision instantly on the water which will then communicate using flags and whistles uh, rather than having to deal with it at the end of racing and in a, in a hearing situation so theory being as an umpire you should be able to make a decision immediately on the water so that when the boat crosses the finish line we know who's won the race and so you don't have any hearings after that point in time okay so how did you get involved with this in the first place then what's the background so um i grew up in plymouth And Plymouth is very fortunate that all schools have sailing clubs, basically. So I went to a state comprehensive school and I was very fortunate that I could go sailing once a week with Mrs. Shields uh, for 50p a week uh, at the local yacht club. And so I started at the age of 11. My brother was a little bit older. He was already sailing. Uh, And the the school had boats and we just basically raced around uh, the River Plym. Uh, and uh, just learned through that and then started to go on school trips and things started to develop over time started working uh, with the Devon School Sailing Association as was uh, learning a bit more about sailing I became an instructor got involved in racing got involved with the local yacht clubs and just worked my way up through the system so I started teaching sailing when I was 16 qualified as an instructor uh, and raced nationally in a couple of internationals as well in my earlier days And so how that then transferred into um, officiating, literally I was in the sailing club one day and uh, a judge called, judge and umpire called Sally, Sally Burnett, she walked into the club and said, does anybody fancy coming umpiring? I was probably 20 or 21 at the time. And I said, well, I'm not doing anything this weekend. Let's give it a go. So uh, I went out with Sally and Liz uh, and that was the start. And I still regularly umpire and judge with Sally and Liz now, sort of 20 years, well, 18, 20 years later. Great. What about the experience of Rio 2016? I was there as a journalist. What do you make of those games and, and that experience? Because for those that don't know, you were a lot more near the centre of Rio, not nearer the city. The Olympic Village was nowhere near the city at all and it operated in its own kind of bubble so how do you how do you see those games and that experience yeah it's true actually the sailing competition because you need 
the geography to help you. It's like London. The sailing competition was nowhere near mm. the, the main Olympic village. So uh, we were out at Marina de Gloria, which is inside Guanabara Bay, um, near the, the Flamingo uh, part of Rio. And we were there twice. So we were there for the test event the year before and then obviously for the real thing in 2016. Uh, and... My most striking memory is the change between 2015 and 2016. Is that because the quality, because if people remember the quality of the water and the concerns that there were before? Absolutely. So um, we would, Rio and Brazil is quite a hot, humid country. Uh, World Sailing brought an infectious diseases doctor with them. Uh, and his recommendation to all of the officials on our motorboats, because we go out in motorboats, is that we needed to be wearing full boots, waterproofs, gloves, uh, and avoid any type of contact with the water at all at that point in time. And then when you come ashore, hose yourself down and have a good wash before you ate or drank anything. So practically, that wasn't really feasible. So none of us did that. And I have to say, uh, out of the jury team, only one person did get sick during that that time, the test event, uh, which was lucky, really. So you could physically see and smell the difference between the water in 2015 and 2016 um, in Guanabara Bay. So um, in 2015, during the test event, there was debris all over the place. And it was very, very challenging because especially for the higher speed sailing boats, if they hit a piece of debris in the water, then uh, the boat will break. Potentially, people will be flung in the water. Uh, but also just from a, a speed and performance perspective, even if you pick up a small amount of debris on your sailing boat, then it's going to slow you down. 2015, there was lots of debris. Come 2016, I have to say, I don't know what the authorities had done in Rio, um, but the water was significantly cleaner, noticeably cleaner. And the actual bacterial and virological testing that they did indicated that it was much, much cleaner. Being part of the games, what was that? Like there was a lot. I, what I remember from my experience of going to the sailing venue was sitting around a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, so there was some. There was a problem with the sailing venue, especially if you were a journalist, uh, and that was the two different sorts of race courses that we had. So we had some race courses that were set inside Guanabara Bay, which is a very large bay with kind of Table Mountain and Christ the Redeemer in the background. So it was great for TV and great for photographs and everything else. But then we had some other courses out in the open ocean around Capacabana and that, that, that kind of offshore area. And they had very different conditions. So the courses offshore... Uh, were generally okay for racing there was always wind whereas the courses in Guanabara Bay often had very light winds to no wind at all and it was only those courses that had TV coverage so there were people out sailing around in the open ocean and they're having great racing um, but there was no footage of it and no coverage of it which made it very challenging whereas in in the bay sadly not much wind so there wasn't much racing yeah what about your experience in general um, away from I guess just being just being part of the olympics yeah well i'm fortunate that i was involved in london as a lot of um, people were uh, so i have two very different uh, experiences of the olympics uh, and london was just the most amazing experience both the olympics and the paralympics um, but rio um it, you know it's a completely different culture it was an amazing fun place for us to stay um, we were staying in a hotel in the Flamingo area of town, uh, outside any of the security cordons or controls. And so actually, you know, we were just going to eat dinner on, on the restaurants on the streets and we had a, a lot of freedom. We had a great time uh, being there. 
it must be a huge privilege in general being a sailing official to be able to travel the world and see some pretty amazing places i think and usually places that have incredible weather as well (laughs) um yeah so i completely agree i live what i believe is a very privileged lifestyle um so yeah um i am basically flown around the world to go and uh, officiate at the events obviously i've worked hard to be there richard uh 20 years of turning up at frozen lakes near bristol in the winter at weekends uh, lots of exams and performance assessments and actually being i suppose an elite level official uh, requires a lot of hard work because we're judging and we're umpiring athletes who are working full-time are coached full-time uh, and for them the decisions that we make um, will mean the difference between winning a gold medal winning no medal it'll be the difference between having a career and not having a career and so it is actually really really quite serious for us and so while um there are no full-time paid officials for sailing really in the world. Uh, It is absolutely critical that we act as professionally as the sailors and we put as much effort into remaining uh, up-to-date and current as they do. Hmm. When you're not on campus or travelling around the world, you're also the chair of Brysnove Actually Gay Men's Chorus. Uh, (laughs) Talk about a man of many talents. 2012, actually, so the year of the Olympics, I was also chairing the uh, judging and umpiring committee for the national governing body and I was on my computer at home all the time doing paperwork and I wanted a fun activity with no committees, no paperwork, none of that. Uh, So I decided to join um, the Brighton and Hove Actually Gay Men's Chorus, which we now shorten to just plain old Actually Gay Men's Chorus. Um, and so that was 2012 uh, and for a couple of years that worked so a couple of years I just turned up sang songs and had a bit of fun and uh, enjoyed my social life Um, but then uh, what three and a half years ago uh, the chair at the time decided to step down and the musical director so the musical director is the paid member of staff that actually runs the rehearsals and produces all the shows he also stood down at the same time and it was a bit of a kind of existential crisis I would say at that time so it was kind of like I step up and actually take it on or the organization might close and uh the chorus had become really important to me as part of my kind of social life uh, and I just didn't want that to happen so I decided to um, step up and I was elected as chair of the Actually Gay Men's Chorus three and a half years ago nearly now so I actually come to the end of my uh, term of office in September uh, and it's looking really positive there's several people who are happy to step up and stand for election as chair so I'm really happy that the organisation's in a really kind of sustainable position now and will be good for the future. Can you tell us about the kind of events that you may end up being at as well? So with the choir, we actually have our own uh, concerts that we perform two or three times a year. Um, We've got a great venue in Hove. It's uh, St Andrew's Church in Waterloo Street. So it's a church's conservation trust church. It's not an active um, church at all anymore. And we use it to rehearse there and to perform there. So we have our own performances, but we also do perform at uh, other kind of public events. We're a community interest company, and one of our goals is to raise money for other charities. Uh, So we do that through our own 
performances but also performing for other people so uh, we were very privileged to perform for the mayor's uh, Christmas fundraiser in the dome in the music room of the dome and you know how many music groups can say that they've performed in the music room created for uh, the Prince Regent. Uh, that was a great honour and that was raising money for uh, the Mayor's Charities. Uh, we also do performances to raise money for uh, Sussex Beacon is our current charity. So just this weekend gone we were performing uh, at the Brighton Bear Weekend which is another community activity, community activity here in the city uh, and that's what uh, an organisation like actually is all about. It's about the community. So Yes, we perform, and yes, performance is what brings us all together, but what keeps us there is the environment, and it is um, the people that turn up week after week. Some of my best friends I, I made in the chorus, and I'm sure they're going to be friends for life, uh, and it becomes increasingly important in, in society because there's uh, a lot of loneliness out there. There's a lot of mental health uh, problems, especially particularly amongst gay men and a lot of loneliness particularly amongst gay men so organizations like actually can help to challenge that by bringing people together in a friendly non-threatening supportive uh, environment you're also on the lgbt plus staff network so could you just quickly tell us about what the the network does but also how important was your role in terms of the stonewall award that the university recently were given uh, so the staff network is a is a self-organized group of members of staff who identify as LGBTQ+. We exist to represent that group of people to the university, but also to provide a level of support to uh, LGBT people. Uh, and one, of, as you say, one of the things that we did was we were involved with the university uh, on the um, Stonewall Workplace Equality Index. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be one of the two representatives from the network on the Working Party, which was led by um, the Director of People. Uh, and the Working Party created an action plan of things that we could do as a university to make our inclusive nature more obvious and actually practically put things in place in terms of policies and procedures and all that sort of thing. Uh, as the network, uh, we we were involved in consultation on all of those policies and made sure they were actually appropriate in what we were looking for. And it was really important for the network that the university was not using this as a box ticking exercise and that it was a genuine attempt to make the place better for people. And we were really, really happy that that is exactly what um, the Stonewall Workplace Equality Index uh, became for us and it is a true reflection of the work that had been undertaken over the past year around LGBT inclusivity and actually to come into the index uh, at 72 I think it was was just utterly brilliant because before that we were around 200 so in the space of 18 months we shot right up through and it was a really challenging index this year because it was the first year that trans people were included in the workplace equality index previous years it had just been lesbian gay bisexual people um, so um, to actually achieve 72nd in what was a really uh, competitive field was really really positive and as I say I, I believe it is a true reflection of the culture here at the university uh, and so now we just need to keep working to ensure that we stay in the top 100 and really truly embed um, inclusion in uh, the processes policies and in our community here at the university. And very excitingly, we've got Pride just uh, a couple of weeks away. So how important is it that the university staff and students all come together to take part in that? Well, a great thing about the 
pride activities for the university is that it's joint so it's between the staff members and it's the student union lgbtq plus society so um effectively we're going to be turning up at hove lawns in the morning um i think we're having the ub1 bus i'm not entirely sure about that you are having the uob1 bus we're having the uob1 bus the new free bus uh, and we're going to be driving that along the parade route there's going to be a march with uh both staff and students uh we've had uh, a competition to design a t-shirt by the students which are being printed as we speak so everyone will have a t-shirt designed by the students um, often there's graduation gowns and rainbow mortarboards throughout the entire place so it's basically uh, a fun time for both the students and the staff to get together and it shows uh, a real kind of solidarity between the two it's important for our students that they can see staff members who are like them at the university so they can feel that they're actually part of a community because my experience and talking to other some of our young people some of our students lately um, there is a general belief that just coming to Brighton is a panacea for an LGBT person but it it's not necessarily the case so some people do really struggle when they come here uh, and if we can provide a bit of support just by being visible then that's a really really positive thing to do and it's a lot of fun as well. Mm. We end every podcast with some quick fire questions the first one then what advice would you give to your younger self? So it would be about being uh, more true to myself uh, so certainly in my teens and early 20s and actually being honest with myself about my sexuality and being more open as a gay man uh, and actually kind of embracing it a lot more okay good answer um can you pick a favorite place in sussex do you know i obviously i love the water so it's going to be uh the beach but specifically um shore and beach just a slightly fewer people than we get on Brighton Beach and you get to sit and watch the kite surfers uh, surfing up and down I really enjoy uh, just chilling out on the beach describe your perfect weekend well I as we've mentioned I travel so much that actually uh, I really really relish those opportunities where I can just be at home uh, so a real treat for me, and this sounds very sad, but a real treat for me is uh, having a lion on a Sunday morning, having a nice cafetiere of coffee, pano chocolat, feet up watching Andrew Marr at 10 o'clock on BBC One. What are you currently reading, watching and or listening to? Uh, well, inevitably, I am reading a book about sailing. Uh, so it's a new tactics book that's come out from a, a guy called John Emmett. Uh, it's really important that we stay up to date with tactics in sailing because that helps us as, as an official. Uh, what am I listening to? Well, all I ever listen to are rehearsal tracks for the shows that we're performing in with the chorus. So um, we have a show coming up on the 21st and 22nd of June, uh, and it is literally just rehearsal tracks. And that's how I learn the music. So I, I don't read music. Okay. So I, I learn by listening. And watching Andrew Marr. <laughs> uh, if, if you can invite three people to dinner, past or present, who would they be and why? Right. So I have got a really eclectic mix. I'm not sure they'd get on, but it'd be interesting. First of all would be a sailor. So I'm going Sir Francis Chichester. So he was the first person to sail solo around the world. I just want to know what was going through his mind when he made that decision, because sailing solo for any distance uh, is really challenging. But having 
no role models and nobody's ever done it before. I just think the strength of character of that guy must just be astonishing. Uh, my second is going to be Oscar Wilde, for obvious reasons. What uh, an incredibly interesting man and, again, incredibly interesting life that that man led. Very, very clever, very... Uh, I can imagine would be a very interesting dinner party guest. And then I think uh, I need somebody to arbitrate potentially between Francis Chichester and Oscar Wilde. So I'm going for Oprah because uh, I, I, she's an amazing inspirational character uh, who uh, would do a good job at a dinner party with those other two, I think. Thanks to Alan for his time. That's about it for this week's episode, but I'll be back next week when I'll be speaking to Dr. Ewan Kirkland, Principal Lecturer in Film and Screen Studies, who'll be talking about an event he's organising, Forever Bowie, an evening celebrating the art and music of David Bowie. If you're not already, you can like or subscribe via Spotify or iTunes, or search University of Brighton in your favourite podcast app. Thanks for listening.